who is a fellow cyclist. So how great can he be? Let's give him a big Waterville welcome. Thank you, Bill, and thank you for that welcome. It's a pleasure for me to be here this morning with you. In fact, uh, when I got here, I think we sat and talked about cycling for about 20 minutes um, and then got the microphone figured out. So we had our priorities straight, I guess. I was telling Bill that in 2010, I tried to take out a Jeep with my bicycle, and the physics of that don't really work out in the favor of the person on the bike, and I got a helicopter ride and a couple days in ICU and have some titanium in my face. Um, my brothers sometimes tell me that I preach like I've been hit in the head by a Jeep, and so we'll uh, hopefully that's won't repeat itself this morning. It's been my uh, privilege and pleasure for the last three years to work for RZIM, specifically in the six New England states, traveling and speaking about 70 or 80 times a year, and primarily in colleges and universities, with young people wrestling with questions. And it's a delightful uh, occupation to have where I get to travel and play in the world of ideas and help people think about the big questions of life. Based off of that experience, I, in years past, put together uh, what I call the top 25 questions that people most frequently ask Christians. And Bill had suggested that I speak addressing some of those. And I thought, actually, what I would do instead of listing out specific questions and specific responses to those is, as a congregation this morning, for us to step back and think about a broader perspective of what really grounds our faith but think about it in such a way that it allows us to think about how we might answer questions. Because the fact of the matter is, is that questions change over time. It's never the same 10 most popular questions. It depends what happens in the world. Is there a flood, uh, an election, whatever could happen? The questions are always changing. And so we want to be thinking, um, what are the value of these questions? Why do we ask these questions? And then how, as Christians, do we respond to those? For Jesus, questions were a huge part of his ministry. Those who are good at counting punctuation marks tell me that uh, Jesus asked 153 questions in the New Testament, and I don't know how many uh, he responded to, but questions are all over the place in the New Testament. And if you have a Bible this morning and want to turn to John chapter 1, I want to read briefly for you, starting in verse 35. So John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. And if not, you can listen along and, and still get the gist of what I'm saying here. Verse 35. The next day, John, talking about John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by and said, Look, the Lamb of God. And we sang about that. And you remember the song? Behold the Lamb of God. So Jesus, uh, John is saying, There he is. Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them and asked, What do you want? This is actually the first words that Jesus speaks in the book of John, our question. What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And you're thinking, that's not the question I would have asked Jesus. But, <laughs> Rabbi, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John, and you will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. And so John intentionally sets up uh, kind of a grandiose beginning to his gospel 
revealing who Christ is, who Jesus is in this world, and then starts to show us how it is that Jesus begins to interact with people and how he begins to call disciples to himself. And in doing so, I want us to think about this morning, and it's a challenge for us as Christians as we engage our world. There's what Jesus said, and there's how Jesus said it. There's the message, and there's the means by which he said it. And if we present a Christ-like message and a non-Christ-like means, we almost always lose. They have to go together. And so some of this isn't exegetical in the sense of exactly what is it that Jesus is specifically saying, but I want us to think about the tone and the context of the way in which Jesus is inviting his disciples to follow him. Because the accusations against what we would uh, be considered to be the term faith don't really find grounding in the way that Jesus actually operates. For example, there's no sword involved here. Jesus doesn't whip out a sword and force people to follow him. It's an invitation. And often, you know, religion's taking over the world and they force people and threaten people. No, we don't find any of that here. The other thing that we don't find here that's commonly thrown at Christians is that it's a blind faith that people just randomly believe things without any evidence. And here again, Jesus isn't saying, hey, believe in me and everything about me instantaneously. What does he say? Come and see. And so there's an invitation for exploration, not this sense of you have to believe immediately. There's an openness and wanting them to reach their own conclusions and develop their own uh, foundation for their belief. So no sword and no blind leaps of faith. That's not, that doesn't have anything to do with Christianity. And we see this work out. What did they do? They went and spent the day. They spent their time with Jesus. Now, there are many ways in which we could define this type of development of faith. But if you think about the way that faith is used throughout the Bible, often it's a backwards-looking enterprise in the sense that we look back to see whether or not God has been faithful. And so we think back to the history of Israel, to the history, has God been faithful to do what he had promised? What does Romans 4 say? Uh, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, was that a blind faith, or did he have something to base that off of? And so really we look back to see the consistency of the character and the nature of God. And if God has said, been faithful to fulfill his promises, then it's not really that random of a uh, leap into the dark to believe that he will do what he has promised. And we know this intuitively by the way in which we form relationships and who we trust in this world. Uh, if I met Bill on the street, don't answer this out loud, but should I trust him just based off of... Um, and he, and he presents to me a truth claim. Well, you know, I might say, hey, he looks like a pretty upstanding guy, you know, and, and, deci- and decide to believe him based off of that. But really, that's a very shallow faith, a very shallow trust and confidence in who he is because I don't know anything about him. On the other hand, if Bill and I have been friends for five years, and every time he's told me something that's true, it turned out that it was true, and then at some point he goes to great lengths and physical pain to himself to bring to me a truth claim, is it... Even if it's kind of a wild thought, is it a blind leap of faith for me to believe that what he said is true? And we would say no. It's based off of the character and nature. It's based off of what we know about looking back on the life of Bill that I can have confidence going forward. And that's exactly the way that the Christian faith is constructed in that way as we look back at what Jesus has done for us in our lives. And our faith is based off of that. In one of the old classics, maybe you've read um, John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, and as Christian is going through the valley of the shadow of death, it's dark and ugly, and he's whacking away with his sword trying to get through all of it, and it gets so bad he has to put his sword away and just pray. And he comes out of the valley of the shadow of death the next morning as the sun is rising and looks back into the valley of the shadow of death and recognizes that what he had been through is actually far worse and scarier than he even knew at the time. And he looks back and he sings a hymn of praise. And he says, and it's written in Old English, right? So, I might have been catched, entangled, and cast down, but because I live, may Jesus wear the crown. 
And so it's looking back at what God had brought him through that gave him confidence and joy moving forward. And that's how Christian faith functions in this world. It isn't coerced and it isn't blind. It moves forward with a deep confidence of what Christ can do, has done, and will do in our lives. Now, when we start thinking about what we believe, we start having questions when we get into the details of it. And in some cultures, there's this idea that a question is a threat or a challenge to authority. And Jesus clearly doesn't take it that way. He sees it as an opportunity for continued growth. And in fact, I would guess that in your lives, the things that you believe to be the most true are the things you've doubted the most severely. It's the things that we've pushed against the hardest and they remain that are the most solid things for us to put our confidence in. That's the way that our faith works. But when we're, doing, we're in this process of, of coming and seeing and evaluating and trying to decide whether or not uh, something is worthwhile putting our energy and effort into, the question is, is it true? And we hear a lot about faith and truth, and maybe we don't always take enough time to stop and think about how is it that we decide whether or not something is true. And in this way, that, that's the burden of listening to a sermon, is you have to figure out whether or not it's true. But I would submit to you that there are three primary ways in which we determine whether or not something is true. And then based off of how we discern what truth is, I'm going to highlight how the questions that the world asks Christians mesh into that category, into, in that framework. So the first thing that we always look for when, something, when we're evaluating whether or not something is true is, is it internally coherent? Does the story itself make sense? Do the characters and the pieces fit together? Is it consistent internally? Is it coherent? Does it fit together? And sometimes, uh, you know, if I told you that I, I have a friend whose name is Dietrich, uh, his wife's name is Susan, and he's a bachelor, you would, you know, there's something that doesn't fit inside that story. Um, and often we're, we see that when we're evaluating other worldviews and we're talking to people and saying, you know, there are pieces inside of that that just don't really make it seem like it's true. Now, on the other hand, you can have a story that's entirely internally consistent but doesn't correspond to the world in which we live. And that would be the second one. Not only does it need to be internally coherent, and consistent, but it needs to correspond. It needs to have some data point in our world that we can point to and look at and say, yeah, this is actually how that happens. Fantasy works this way. It has an internally coherent story, but it doesn't apply to our real world. Think of Middle Earth, for example. You know, all the names and places, and it all works out, right? It's a, it's a big, made-up world, but it all fits. The story makes sense within itself, but I've never been out for a morning jog and been chased by an orc. So it is internally coherent, but it doesn't correspond to the world that I live in. I said that once at the University of Vermont, and one of the students said, well, that's just because you haven't done enough drugs. Um, so, <laughs> point taken. Um, so it, it needs to have both of those things. It needs to be internally consistent, but it also has to correspond to our reality. And then I would say that it also has to be something that's livable. Does it actually make a difference whether or not this is true? And so I'm thinking in those categories often when I'm trying to respond to a question that somebody has about Christianity is where does it fit in to that framework? Now, to establish truth, what do we do? How do we figure it out? We ask questions. And I think one of the fun things for me as a Christian was that I grew up in a culture that embraced developing a culture of asking questions. It wasn't seen as a threat. It was a, a go-for-it type um, situation. And actually, it may seem counterintuitive, but Christianity allows us to ask more questions than any other worldview. I was speaking somewhere once uh, this spring, and a student asked me, why do you even ask these why-type questions, these big meaning questions? Why would you even ask that? Um, and it's because from his naturalistic perspective, there aren't 
what there isn't what ought to be. It's just it is what it is. And we can only ask questions within that. And as a human, I want to ask why. I want to have the opportunity to ask why and push back and search for meaning and think about deeper existential things. So Christianity really provides a framework that allows me to ask and push questions in every single category of life. It isn't restricted just to some little narrow sliver of scientific reality. It includes that, but there's so much more to it. And so I hope that you can catch the... Uh, if you've grown up in Christianity, you don't always, I think, get a, a feel for the flavor of the beauty of what it is that you're allowed to do by asking a question. It's not seen as an assault on authority. It's not undermining your faith. It's an opportunity for you to continue to grow. Now, the reason that it's important for Christians to be engaged with non-Christians, and not always just in a speaking sense, but also in a listening sense, is we have to know what the questions other people are asking are. Because oftentimes, historically, the church has developed really good answers to questions. And we learn those answers, and then we find ourselves in a world that isn't asking those questions anymore. And so if you're giving an answer to a question that hasn't been asked, we always miss. Um, and oftentimes that's why we have this talking past each other happening. So when we listen to our culture well, what it does is it allows us to know what the questions are. And sometimes we have to sit with that, with some ambiguity, and say, I don't know what the response to this is. But if we don't know what the questions are, we'll never be able to delight and the beauty of a good answer. If we didn't know there was a question, often what Jesus says doesn't make sense to us. And I can illustrate it for you this way. Uh, I was for a while priding myself in being able to answer all of my two-year-old's questions. Uh, this is a, a game, of course, my wife said that if I use ontological as a word in response to a two-year-old, she wins. Um, <laughs> so I was trying to answer all of her questions for about a while. Um, and then one day at dinner, she says to me, Daddy, what color were Johnny Appleseed's eyes? Johnny Appleseed being the itinerant apple tree planter from the late 1800s. I was pretty sure, you know what, I've got nothing for you on this one. I don't even know if you can Google it, which turns out you can, but I didn't know that at the time. So I was like, well, I'm stumped. There's no way for me to even know what color Johnny Appleseed's eyes were, and I don't really know that it's worth going out of my way to figure that out. But it's a question that I had in my mind that I knew somebody had, and then about two months later, I was sitting in an airport reading a book, and the man said that his great-great-aunt knew Johnny Appleseed, and every time that she came to visit him, she would tell the same story and always started talking about Johnny Appleseed and his wispy gray hair and bright blue eyes. And I was like, yes! <laughs> Almost threw the book in the airport, like, ha-ha! Um, but I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that had that delight in reading that sentence because I was the only one who knew somebody who had that question. Does that make sense? So we have to know what the questions are in order to be excited about a good answer. And that's why it's critical that we're doing a good job of listening to our culture around us. What is going on, and what are those questions? And sometimes, even as I read Scripture, I put question marks in my margin because I, I have no idea what Jesus is talking about here. Um, and then I keep reading, and I go back, oh, okay. And I draw a little arrow back up and scribble it out and put it together. But we, we want to be thinking deeply about the questions not only that other people have, but the questions that we ourselves have. So there's a, a sense in which... We can't just learn to, here's the question, here's the answer, here's the question, here's the answer. And I think there have been helpful models of that if you think about different catechisms and different religious movements that have kind of set up a question and response. Those are helpful for creating a structure, but the rate of change in our world is even changing. There's an acceleration of the rate of change. And so that means that every Christian has to be a pretty decent theologian to try to wrap together all that God has taught and revealed about himself and respond in a timely and winsome fashion to what's going on. Part of the challenge for us, for people living in this time, is that we live 
not in isolated little bubbles, but we're always in relationship with people that see the world differently than ourselves. And it may have been that 100 years ago you could grow up in a small town in Maine and only know other Christians, and that's it. Now you know people from all kinds of different walks of life and area, and because of the media we are constantly exposed and our belief systems are constantly pressured. There's constantly a challenge to what it is that we believe, and we're constantly living in a life shoulder to shoulder with people that see the world differently than we do. And so there's this continuous interface of us having to justify and rethink and reevaluate what it is that we believe and how that intersects with other people. Now, this can go two ways. Uh, and, but part of what it does is we, we sometimes end up with a culture that doesn't, we think in terms of believers and non-believers, believers and doubters. But often what you have is a group in the middle that's believing while doubting or doubting while believing. It's not a cut and dry, clear. There's a continuum there of people that are wrestling. They say, yeah, I believe this, but I really have a lot of questions about this. Or as a young man that I ran into last night said, I'm an atheist, but I'm really captivated by the literature of Scripture. I'm really interested in reading that. Um, and I find you know, that to be captivating for me. And so we live in this, this tension, almost to speak, um, in some ways, in between two worlds. And I, I think it's a fun place to live, but it can be disorienting. And that's why we're thinking about these things this morning. Now, from my perspective, when I'm engaging somebody who sees the world differently than I do, uh, a skeptic, and just to make a distinction here, I, I think there's a helpful distinction between a skeptic and a doubter. Somebody who doubts is somebody who has questions hoping there's an answer. A skeptic might be somebody who has questions hoping there isn't an answer. Um, but when I engage a skeptic, in a lot of ways I have a lot of compassion for that person because I assume that they have different life experiences than I do and that we don't, um, aren't coming from the same background. But here's the reason why I'm skeptical of anybody who presents a truth claim to me. So say you're not a Christian and somebody comes to you and t- starts talking to you about Jesus. Why are we initially hesitant toward that? And it's because we live in a world that's completely over-marketed to as far as truth claims go. Very rarely are there things that are presented to me to be true that are genuinely for my benefit. I mean, it's a commercial culture where actually the lady on the TV doesn't think that this is the best hair product in the world, but if she can convince you that it is, then you buy that and she makes money. There's always a, a, here's something that's true, and if I can get you to believe it, then I'm going to benefit from it. And that's the world we live in. And even sometimes people who are Christians, you know, I walk out of a store and they're like, hey, I have a track. I'm like, no, you know, wait a second. We agree on the same thing. But, um, you know, it's it's that, that hesitancy to, to make ourselves vulnerable because we feel like we're going to be taken advantage of if we accept somebody else's truth claim. And, and we need to recognize that that's a real thing. I see heads nodding in the room, but just think about that's the perspective of the other person who is listening to us talk about Christianity. That's the, that's the format. That's the setup. And unique in history is the person of Jesus who comes and genuinely talks about truth for the benefit of the other person. He's one of the rare people who doesn't have a catch. It's out of a heart of love for the other. And that should guide us as we think about how we respond to questions. So when we start thinking about the categories of truth, the value of a question, the way people are asking questions, then we can start saying, well, what types of questions are people asking? If somebody says, you know, if there's a good God, why would there be suffering in the world? What type of question is that? That's a question about the internal coherence and consistency of the Christian worldview. It seems like there's a problem in your story if God is good and there's suffering. What about um, if God is all loving, why do I feel so lonely? That's a correspondence question. It doesn't seem like what you're telling me matches the life that I feel like I'm experiencing. And then there are a whole other range of questions about what is actually livable. Is this possible? What difference would it make in my life in the first place? 
And so we come back around and we start thinking in those categories and it starts making it a bit easier to respond to these questions because we're saying, what is this question really about? What's really going on here? What's the best avenue to come back around to this? So let's give ourselves an example and pick an easy one, all right? Why do Christians say that it's wrong to murder someone? Um, and you can think in your mind for a second where you would go with that. Um, and it's, a, it's an old question. It's not unique to Christianity about the value of life. It goes all the way back. Well, one of the f- famous times that this uh, popped up is something called Euthyphro's Dilemma. Um, it's Socrates having a conversation with a young man who's going to court. And uh, he says, why are you going to court? And he said, well, my father beat a slave, and the slave ended up dying, so I'm going to turn him in. And it turns into this conversation about what is good, what is pious. And Socrates finally says to him, is it, and this is a paraphrase of that, is, is something good because God commands it? Or does God command it because it's good? And this, for the last 2,000-plus years, has been known as Euthyphro's Dilemma. Does God command something because it's good, or is it good because God commands it? That's the dilemma. The problem being that if it's good just because God commands it, then whatever God commands could be good. And so God's laws are actually arbitrary. Just make them up, and whatever he says goes. There are religions that believe that. But then if we say that God commands something because it's good, then that means there's a standard of goodness that's above God that God himself is obedient to. And so this is presented as a problem for theistic people in constructing any type of morality. And the Christian response has historically been, and I believe correctly so, that it's a false dilemma. It's neither one of those options that God commands things that are consistent with the character and the nature of who he is. It's based off of his nature that he commands us to do things. So think about it. How does this work out? From the Old Testament all the way through Peter. Be holy because I am holy. Forgive as I have forgiven you. Be perfect as your heavenly father. You, you start seeing this relationship between the isness of God provides the foundation for the oughtness of humanity. Um, if you wanted it, Grammatically, I guess you could say the divine indicative is the foundation of the human imperative. How God is is the way that we ought to be. And so in the character and the nature of who God is, we found our foundation for responding to all of these questions. But then we've got to push back and say, well, what is the character and the nature of God? Get ready for it, Christians. Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, Philippians 2 talk about the fullness of God being in him, the full essence God was pleased to make... It's known to us, showing us the heart of God in this world. And so Christ comes along and says to his disciples, follow me, not just in the sense that I want you to follow around in my footsteps, but follow me in the sense of I'm opening your eyes to see the heart of God, the character and nature of who he is, and it's going to fundamentally alter the way in which humans relate to God and to each other. It all comes back to this, what is God like? And so if you think about the questions that people have for you, and you don't have to respond to them immediately, but think about how, do, how is this question challenging the internal coherence of my faith, its correspondence to reality, its livability, but really what's the background picture? What is the assumption there about what God is like? And if you work it up through that model of thinking, question, where does it fit in my worldview? What does the nature of God say about that? How is the nature of God revealed in, in Christ? then most questions you can run back up into the character and nature of God and then end up talking about Jesus based off of that question. There's a direct link there because if Jesus truly does fully reveal the heart of God to us, then the life of Christ does have something to bear on the question and in the life of the person who's asking. They're not disconnected. If Jesus is Lord of everything, there isn't a category in life in which we shouldn't be able to start exploring that and end up back at the cross. Everything is connected. It's not a compartmentalized little world. Uh, we, we talk about Christianity not being a religion but a, a relationship. 
But actually, we might need a little bit more religion in our world. Religion meaning that uh, it's from a Latin word meaning to re-ligament. You know, ligaments hold the bones together. It's the thing that structures and pieces everything back together so that people can see the big picture of what's going on. And so what's happening when somebody comes to you who's a non-Christian and is asking you a question about how does this fit into your worldview, it's almost, I think, the role of the Christian in our modern culture is someone who holds the box top to the puzzle. Have you ever tried to put a puzzle together without seeing the box top? I mean, it's a, it's a train wreck. It's almost impossible. It can't be done because you don't know where things go. And so Christians uniquely, as revealed to us in the person of Christ, have the box top to the puzzle of life. And our friends come to us with a little piece of the puzzle and say, here's my question. How in the world does this fit in to what it is that you believe? And you look at it and you say, oh, I think that's the top of a lighthouse and the wing of a seagull. It goes here in the upper left-hand corner. Um, we're piecing together. We're helping people see where their question fits into the bigger picture of what it is that God is doing in the world. Now, that also means that we have to do a good job of doing our own uh, study of who Jesus is, and we have to know the scriptures well, and we ourselves have to have a biblical worldview to help other people connect those dots. But there's value in doing that, and there's great difficulty in answering a question well that you've never wrestled through yourself. If somebody asks you a question about suffering, it's probably a good thing if you've thought that through for a couple hours and days and years yourself. Um, Take the time to to second-guess yourself a little bit in the certainty of what you believe, not because it's going to destroy your faith, but because I believe by pushing into these things, we really do find a deeper vision of what it is that God's doing in the world. Somebody gave me the very simplistic analogy, but I've found it to be true in my life, that the Christian life is almost like going in a funnel backwards. You start in the small end, but the farther you go into it, the bigger it gets. And so if we aren't asking good questions and challenging, we're not making progress into the full depth of what it is that Jesus has for us to know about him and delight in that relationship and also the impact that he wants to have in our world. Now, when John says, look, there's the Lamb of God, what do the the disciples say? Okay, great, got it. No, there's some legwork for them to do too. They're the ones who went and spent time. They are the ones who went and followed. And often as we think about our impact Uh, in the community around us and in the world around us, we have to realize that our experience never counts as evidence for somebody else to believe something. Our experience isn't part of the evidence. Now, the way in which God works in our lives may change us to the uh, extent that other people start to become curious, but I can't, based off of my experience, convince somebody that that is a, a legitimate source of evidence for them because, frankly, you and I both know a lot of people that have had a lot of weird experiences. Um, and you don't want to go down that road. And often when we start talking about why we're Christians, instead of answering why we're Christians, we start telling the story of how we became a Christian. So we'll say something like, well, um, I was going through a rough time in my life, met a bunch of great people, went to church with them, they had good coffee and music, and I really enjoyed it, and I joined the church. Okay, that's also the way you join a cult. Um, So what is the, so we start with, this is how I became a Christian, but Rarely do we think deeply about why is it that I'm a Christian in the first place. And maybe that's a good homework assignment is to think, why am I a Christian? What are the things that I'm basing this on? Have I done the legwork myself? Sure, there's John who says, look, the Lamb of God, and we sing it. But am I just taking everybody else's word for it? Or have I followed and asked Jesus, where are you at? And has he said to me, come and follow? And have I spent the time to listen to what he might say to me in our lives? There's a sense in which, if you think about this idea of being on the cusp and on the edge and in between 
uh, faith and doubt that maybe the New Testament seems like it contradicts itself in some ways. At uh, the beginning of James, James says, don't doubt. Don't be a double-minded person. And at the end of Jude, it says, be merciful to those who doubt. How do we hold those in tension? Well, we look at the context in which those are said clearly, but we also do a little bit of legwork and think, you know, what James is talking about there when he says don't doubt and don't be double-minded is he's really talking about the inability to judge between two things. And Jesus, he's talking about fence-sitters, basically. And one of the things that terrifies me about Jesus is Jesus had ridiculously high expectations for our ability to choose between good and evil. Think about all the times that he was in interaction with a Pharisee or he cast out a demon and they said, well, he does this by the, you know, by Beelzebub. Jesus snaps at those points. If you can't get it figured out in your minds that what's good, what's of God and what isn't of God, that's when Jesus condemns the double-minded person, the person who's doubting. And so this willful position of actually I'm not going to make a decision on anything um, is a dangerous place to be. And the reason that it's difficult in our culture is because we function in an academic society that values skepticism above making a decision. And so we're in a culture where the highest form of education is to know enough about everything that we don't make a decision on anything. I know more than everybody else about all their little subgroups, and so I'm going to stay above that and not make a choice based off of anything. That's the dangerous place to be in when we put ourselves where we're not going to make a decision, where we don't have to decide between what's good and bad. But on the other hand, you have Jude saying, be merciful to those who are wrestling and merciful to those who are struggling. And so I don't know who all is here. I've never seen most of you before, a few from last night. But I'm assuming we're at different places. There's a continuum here. There are those who have been part of the church. Maybe some of you just walked in for the first time. I don't know. But think about what it means to ask a good question and know that the church is a safe place to ask those that Jesus is a safe person to bring those to, and that he isn't going to meet you with a sword or a command of blind faith, but he is going to do something much more difficult, and that is turn and invite you to come and follow him. Now, Jesus invited people to follow him that didn't, and he didn't go running after them and change his doctrine or the way he was doing things. And, oh, no, I changed my mind. Come back. He has a high, high standard. He reflects and reveals for us the character and the nature of God. It's a nature in which God comes to that which despises him, comes to the other, comes to the outsider, comes for everyone. We sang from the Pharisee, think about it, Jesus healing the leper in the middle of nowhere to the inner city. He's everywhere. He's come, rolls up his sleeves, gets involved, comes down, comes among, and asks 153 questions and let people ask him countless more because it's God's pleasure to reveal himself and to make himself known to us, but he doesn't want us to do that in a blind, shallow way. He wants it to be a real relationship. He wants there to be real commitment involved there. A real sense in which I have decided to follow Jesus isn't just a little kid song, but it's a way of life. It's a way of thinking that shapes the way not only that I live, but also the way that I perceive my religion and my worldview. But that's also going to fundamentally change the way in which I start to engage people around me. There's no disconnect between the questions that humanity has and the things that our culture wrestles with and what it is that Jesus asked of me to do. In some ways, we're victims of history in the sense that you can never be Jesus' first disciples. Here it is right here, Jesus' first disciples. That already happened. But though you can't be his first disciples, there's always the invitation for you to be his most recent disciple. 
And that is the call for us, whether or not we're already Christian. Jesus a couple times had to turn around and straighten out his followers and come follow me, get behind me. But for those who haven't, there is an invitation. And my sense is that this is a place that it's a safe place to come and see, to listen. Cast a skeptical eye around. What's really going on here? What is the character and nature of God? How do the questions that I have, the things that I sense to not quite be right in the world, find their fullness and their fulfillment in Christ? So in doing this, I hope that you see that there's great value in asking a question because as we push into it, it gets clearer. The world gets bigger. And we ask them because we're trying to reconcile all of these things together in our minds. And we know that in Christ, all things are reconciled together. And we answer in a way that is true, not flippant, but also in a way that mirrors the manner in which Jesus presented truth, which was a humble one. Very certain, very, uh, had a clear idea of exclusive truth, but the tone in which he did it was one of an invitation and a safe place to come and see and spend time with and look over my shoulder and through my heart at what I'm doing in the world. So that's our invitation. And let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll turn it back over to Bill and take it from there. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather as friends, neighbors, believers this morning and look at your life and reflect on the way in which you welcomed our questions, even if they seemed a little bit ridiculous, like where are you staying, that you took that and used it to draw us closer to yourself. May that be the result in our lives this morning as well, that wherever we're coming from, we would take a step closer to following you. Amen. All right. Um, I was just making sure. I wasn't sure what uh, Nathan's plans might be between services and all that, but uh, he's here. Take advantage of him. He told me that there is nothing that he does not know and cannot answer. So can line down the aisle here, and I'm sure he'd be happy to uh, solve all your life mysteries. But first, I have a few for him. Uh, let me have you stand and just remind you again about the uh, annual vision meeting tonight. Business meeting. <laughs> and uh, hopefully we'll see you tonight. Lord bless. <laughs>